0: The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.
1: Welcome to Crime and Justice Radio, where we talk all things crime, justice, mayhem, and the courts with expert insiders and legal outcasts. My name is Aida Leisnering. I'm your host, along with Bruce Barquette. How's it going?
2: Pretty well. How about yourself?
1: Um, Great. Happy Martin Luther King Day.
2: Thank you. Thank you. And for all our our listeners out there, new system we're trying. So uh, first, you can still call in 631-451-1039. Happy to be here, Um, but we're going to try broadcasting live through a slightly different venue called our office so we don't have to miss episodes or uh, opportunities when we're traveling or on trial and we want to know how it sounds so tell us how it sounds
1: yes please tell us how it sounds um but it sort of commemorates martin luther king in a way right because it allows us to to,
2: to work
1: towards a beautiful cause Um, You know, defending those who uh, need second chances, exonerating the innocent and so forth. And we're actually going to talk about one of our colleagues' attempts to do so. Danielle Muscatello is going to come on later tonight. She is an unbelievable uh, both criminal trial defense attorney, but also appellate lawyer. And you don't often see lawyers that wear both hats, that know how to litigate a case during a trial, but also how to argue on appeal that someone should be exonerated or released or have their conviction overturned. And she's going to talk about Christopher Porco, who says he's innocent of killing his father um, and assaulting his mother and has been incarcerated ever since he was 21 when the crime allegedly occurred. Well, certainly a crime occurred, but whether or not he's um, the party who committed it is the question so we'll have her on um but as i was reflecting on um great quotes by martin luther king are you I mean, going to connect
2: that to the to the new venue that we have Where we're yeah
1: doing no it's 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 awkward? what it allows us to do is what are we doing today to commemorate his birthday we're hard at work even though it's a national holiday and we could be hanging out with friends and families and um i don't know brunching I bet a lot of people are doing nothing to commemorate him, right? Uh, we're at work. Watch the
2: Dallas Cowboy game later. We'll see.
1: Right. Well, true. I'm not saying all day long, but we're we're hard at work filing motions to dismiss, filing motions opposing, you know, the government's motions to preclude our experts and so forth, and preparing for trials. Um, and I I think that's a good way to celebrate his birthday. In fact, dare I say this? If you work in criminal justice or social justice, you do deserve the day off. But perhaps today should be spent celebrating and kind of emerging yourself in the work that we do.
2: Doing some service because that was uh, um, part of what he had to say, which is doing things for others. I I actually thought about this a little bit and thought about uh, Martin Luther King. And for whatever reason, Gandhi came to mind as well. Uh, obviously, two different men, two different errors, two different countries, but both were um, advocates for nonviolent direct action, and both were assassinated, uh, shot down um, by extremists. Gandhi was shot down by a Hindu extremist who objected to his uh, concessions to the Muslims, and, of course, Martin Luther King was shot down by... Uh, uh somebody who opposed what he was doing um so
1: and and in advocating for peaceful protest uh people should not confuse that with a sort of still negative peace pacific. that, that it, it wasn't passive and yeah. that's why they were vilified by uh those who challenged their views and and um you know, sought to be destroyed. And I, I was reading one of his reflections on the letter from Birmingham Jail when he was incarcerated for protesting. And it's so beautifully before, written before and it read, really what? Yeah,
2: before you read that, both that's the other thing that struck me is both Gandhi and King were incarcerated uh for their nonviolent direct action. Uh, and
1: and he and he writes, and I think this is Something that actually my mom taught me it was about silence and it was about um how how not acting is really an act of injustice. And he says, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in this stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek. But I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And I don't mean to point that out for for racial divides or racial politics, but I mean to point that out in everything that we do, you know, in well-intentioned judges or well-intentioned prosecutors who um, will put up the most vicious of fights in our Herculean efforts to exonerate an innocent man, though later they may say it was the right result um it it, it's it's really fascinating right like i remember we did a trial once in front of a judge and one of our colleagues said oh he's the worst judge i've had because of his bedside manner and i said oh that doesn't bother me at all because he's fair and you can get a very very nice polite understanding judge who will say Unfortunately, I'm gonna rule this way and completely screw your client out of his constitutional rights and potential his potentially his innocence claim. So I think his words resonate today. It resonates in all aspects of life, not just criminal justice, but whether it's familial disputes, standing up for people we love, and so forth.
2: Well, I I, I... That's a great quote. Of course, the letter from the Birmingham jail is a famous, famous letter. The part that the the quote that I think of in doing the work that we do, and it comes to us often. um, I'll give one from Martin Luther King. And because I've somehow fallen into this Gandhi thing today, one from Gandhi. Martin Luther King says, let us realize the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And certainly that's true for the individuals that have been incarcerated for years who are innocent. And we know a number of them. We've been lucky enough to be involved in them, uh, uh, involved in getting them exonerated. So that you have individuals that, that have been in jail for 10, 20, 25, 26 years before they're um, finally released. And that that phrase, uh, let us realize the arc of the moral universe is long, but bends towards justice. Um, I, I guess that's true. It's just tough to, tough to, if you're actually in jail, uh, it's tough to, to, to wait it out that way.
1: Right. Or I could be jaded and say, does it bend towards justice? Cause often it does not, uh, even after a long journey, but.
2: Yeah, it's, it is, um, well that and the, the, um, the, the, the one from Gandhi that I, I looked, at, I read a bunch of them today, but the one from Gandhi that really struck me, uh, strength does not come from physical capacity. It comes from an indomitable will. So. Um, That's too
1: bad. The, I'm really strong.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, but my will sucks. No, I'm kidding.
2: So, so, so <laughs> my, my, if somebody described one trait about me, it would be stubborn. And that would be true. You know, My, I I completely, apropos of nothing, my wife, when we moved, right, so we dug up all this old stuff, found a framed photograph of me playing my football team when I was 11 years old.
1: Oh, and here we go. Midget football.
2: We well, can't call it that anymore, but that's what we oh, call it. I thought it. that's what it was. They were actually that's called. That's what Sorry. it was called in 1969, <laughs> 1970. 1970. edit button. Oh, right yeah but it, it, and you know the story that they they tried to cut me, and I showed up the next day anyway. They cut several of us. They cut about half a dozen kids said, Don't come back, you're not good enough. I showed up the next day, and they um uh they said, What are you doing here? And I said, "Well, I'm going to run with the team. Is that okay and Of course, how can you tell an 11 year old boy you can't run with the team? So I ran with the team, they eventually pieced together a uniform. I got the heck kicked out of me. For that year, because I really wasn't big enough or strong enough. The next year I was a captain. Uh, Way to go, Rudy. <laughs> well, it, 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 it's, yeah, sort of. But that well, one, it's, that defines, listen, me. I, I just refuse to give up.
1: Yeah, it's um, helped you in the courtroom. And I'll tell you this. Um, I I struggle between um, conservative and sort of uh, uh, risky uh criminal defense litigation and i think at the legal aid society i was taught to be slightly conservative lean on not putting your client on the stand lean on not putting witnesses on make the prosecutor meet their burden and argue reasonable doubt right and then i came to work at this firm and and you kind of showed me a different way of doing things and i remember being terrified um at rejecting offers on some serious felonies um, of disorderly conduct, right? And it's funny because you're advising a client, like, if you don't take this offer of disorderly conduct, even though you, you claim to be innocent, I believe in your innocence, anything could happen at trial, the jury might get it wrong, and you might get convicted of rape, be incarcerated for 15 years, and be a registered sex offender for life. So it's very difficult to turn down a plea on a matter like that. To disorderly conduct, a violation, not a crime, and I remember you pushing that will, pushing and saying, "Don't take that if you're innocent." And me getting stuck with the uh, the work of preparing individuals to go into the it's grand perfect, jury perfect in that comment. situation. But but it worked, you know. And in that sense, uh, things did bend towards justice. So it's a perfect combination: like,
2: my stubbornness and your skill. But I'll say this, another quote from Gandhi, if I keep on saying to myself that I cannot do a certain thing, it is possible that I may end by really becoming incapable of doing it. On the contrary, if I have a belief that I can do it, I shall surely acquire the capacity to do it, even if I may not have it at the beginning. So the, the strength of will and the persistence to pursue justice Uh, A trait of Gandhi, a trait of King, and I think a trait of all great uh, criminal defense attorneys. And
1: And athletes, because you're basically visualizing the win, visualizing the ability. Let me hit you with a Martin Luther King quote. It's a famous one. We all know it. But but I'm curious, what's your view on this? If you actually put it in practice Martin Luther King, letter from Birmingham jail. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws.
2: Well, you know where I stand on that, right? No, no. Where
1: you know, do you stand?
2: You know that, that I would oppose and disobey unjust laws. Um, and for sure, I've represented clients who've done it um on un- laws they believe to be unjust it's part of what we do and it's part of the great historic civil rights movement that really started well before king and continues to this day uh as we fight for racial justice for everybody um right. and, but, and not just
1: that, but, i mean I,
2: it to my daughter to my 17 year old daughter who may be listening right now the key is judgment which laws are just and which laws are unjust? When you stand up and oppose a law and claim it to be unjust, understand you have a heavy burden in that regard to, to establish your position. Because if, if you, regardless of whether you're right or wrong, you're going to pay a price for it. King ended up in jail. Gandhi was in jail. Um, and a number of other civil rights leaders lost their lives. Malcolm X was shot. We can go down the list. So it's it's a big deal. But yeah, of course you do. Of course I agree with vaccine
1: you. vaccine laws they were disobeyed by many. Oh, uh, let's not go Biden. there. Tonight. Well no, I know, but 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 think think about I really meant it when I said a lot of what Martin Luther King addressed resonates today. Unfortunately, it still resonates in in racial divides and racism in the criminal justice system, but it also resonates with other matters in life right and among them are who you stand up for who you support um and and we tend to think of those quotes as significant to uh identifiable um groups that are um underserved right but but it's it's in all things in life um so
2: it it does Um, remind me uh, go ahead sorry
1: that's no, 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 OK. I'm done. You know, we only have five minutes left. And I uh, and I uh, love that we've been talking about Martin Luther King this whole time.
2: Well, we've been talking about Martin Luther King and criminal justice and what it's like to represent the downtrodden and how we fight for justice for people that are innocent and so forth. It's important work uh, that our firm does. I mean, you know, my motto for our firm is, you know, it, it's we're not just criminal defense attorneys. You know, we defend the accused. Most of the time, we seek mercy for those condemned or convicted, but every once in a while, more often than people want to admit, we participate in the exoneration of an innocent person, and that's really good work if you can get it. But let's move to some of the topics that are dealt you with. Have just
1: something really I'm tacky and unclassy right now. Let's okay, get into. Okay, go
2: that. I'm, let's I'm, talk I'm about all, Biden I'm, I'm
1: about that. and the classified oh, documents. <laughs> Um, like
2: somebody who needs to deserve mercy it is certainly right, not.
1: Right. I don't point. even know if he, I don't even know if it's a uh, mercy call. It may just have been so inadvertent. There's no aggravator. Um, everyone's aggravator is
2: stupidity and carelessness and hypocrisy. Right. How about that? And you know, I'm no Trump fan. Everybody who knows me knows that. Anybody who's, right, but I, to, I, was, uh, I was, I
1: okay, first of all, you can't just let me, right. let me run it down. Go ahead,
2: go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. His
1: vice go. president. We don't know how the documents that were deemed classified, and they were by no means as many as Trump had. And I think in the Trump matter, they were more than just classified. A lot of things are rubber-stamped classified that really aren't or are no longer classified or are not quite sensitive or national secret information, right? But they, his lawyers in cleaning up or moving boxes basically found – some of the documents in his I forget what project or library he set up, but others were in his garage um, and they immediately disclosed this to the National Archives and everyone's yelling hypocrisy and double standards. Attorney General Merrick Garland assigned a special prosecutor. It's that same special prosecutor that's investigating the Trump case and probably the appropriate special prosecutor and U.S. attorney to do so because they're well familiar with these laws at this point and having um. Investigated them. But it's it's obviously, you know, it can be a crime to take classified documents. Um, It's possible that President Biden may have violated the Presidential Records Act. Um, But the DOJ only prosecutes these cases when an aggravating factor is present. And here, did he knowingly and intentionally keep the documents? Or did he take them home to review something and forgot to return them? And I don't think there's a law against presidents or vice presidents and they get treated alike. I don't think there is a distinction with the uh, Presidential Records Act. It, it, It treats the president and vice president equally. Is it a crime to take documents home to read while you're in office? I don't think it is.
2: Uh, I, I, I don't think it's uh, – it depends on the document. Some documents are, are intended only to be read inside of a room without your cell phone. Uh, you can take notes, but you can't take okay. the documents and so forth. And sometimes you can't even take notes. That's beside the point. My um, complaint is you cannot be righteously indignant about what Trump did and have classified documents next to your Corvette in your garage. You just can't Oops. do that. Yeah, Oops. but it's it's it's, it's – it's, it's stupidity. It's carelessness. Maybe it's more than that.
1: Oh, you're a spark hat spark you not We live in hypocritical times filled with hypocritical people.
2: Yeah. Just, you know?
1: I I know, as, as that's really to yourself, where, we, where you we've do? gotten. You, you, you
2: know, it just, it, I, the, the cases are not the same. I see the differences, but the 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 rank hypocrisy of being so careless and so. Indignant is is stark, and I, I, I think that's where that's where we end up uh, um, with that. And you know we'll 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 see where it goes. He'll never Biden will never get indicted, not for that anyway. And Trump will probably get indicted in Atlanta and he'll probably get indicted in D.C. for the January sixth. So and we'll have an indicted former president in the trials in an election year, twenty twenty four. Should be pretty fun.
1: So he'll never
2: get off the news. Trump. Basically. No, not for a few more years. Not for a few more years. We're going to take a break in a minute or two, or just a few seconds, come back with uh, Daniel Muscatella, who is an attorney with our firm, who has been representing Chris Porco for a number of years. You don't know about the case. Google it. Chris Porco out of Albany. Uh, very similar to Marty Tankliff's case in some respects. Um, but he, uh, he uh, has been in jail now for 17 years. And finally, uh, we filed a 250 page motion to vacate his conviction alleging that we found and certainly have new evidence, new medical examiner and uh, some problems with the original trial.
1: We'll be back shortly. Stick around. Welcome back to Crime and Justice Radio. My name is Aida Leisenring. I'm here with Bruce Barquette. And we have one of our favorite guests in the world. Uh, She's our colleague, Danielle Muscatello, a graduate of NYU in 2001 and Benjamin Cardozo School of Law in 2006, where I first met Danielle as we were planning our careers in criminal justice. She went on to go to the Kings County District Attorney's Office, and I went to work at the Legal Aid Society in Brooklyn. So we were adversaries. And then she went on to not just after becoming a very, very strong trial lawyer, she went on to do many, many successful appeals. And for listeners, that's a rare skill for a lawyer to have. A lot of lawyers are are uh, litigation experts or, you know, they, they do document reviews um, or transactional stuff. But in the criminal justice world, you're either a trial attorney or you're an appellate lawyer. And it's rare to have two people, any per- one person, excuse me, wear both hats. And that's Danielle Muscatello. And she's here with us today because she just filed a, what, 235 page? 440, motion to... 213, 213. Well, 213.
2: Well, 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 let's, let's, intru- let's introduce the case a bit. Danielle's done a great work with it. Um, back in 2002 or 2003, an individual by the name of, is it Peter Porco? Peter I, Porco, Peter 2004. Was attacked brutally with an axe in his home, as was his wife, Joan. 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 Uh, Joan has no memory of the event. Was brutally uh, beaten and hit with the axe, but survived. Peter, who was a very well respected and very well liked lawyer, who worked at the appellate division, not as a judge but as a a, a law clerk, um, Justice Cardona, right of the who, third
1: department,
2: right who um, who died. And it was, at the time, an unbelievably heinous crime, still is, but got an enormous amount of publicity in Albany. He was represented by an individual who, for reasons that, frankly, escape me, enjoys a great reputation in the, in the capital region, Terry Kinlan, uh, who also represented Cal Harris in trial two, a case that we took over from him um, in Here's, trial well, three and four.
1: Chris, who- who who who's representing who we haven't named
2: Kinlan represents chris porco represented chris porco at trial the
1: son of peter porco who was was charged and convicted of uh, his father's murder when he was 21 years old
2: and the attempted murder of his mother and he's doing life in prison now danielle picked this case up probably five years ago or so uh at least five years ago and has worked tremendously on it and filed the motion uh claiming that the the uh he was wrongly convicted that he's actually innocent and that Kinlan uh was ineffective constitutionally ineffective for not doing a number of things so real briefly the evidence against him was now Chris Porco claimed to be at Rochester at the time of the murders in college and the murders took place in the Albany area so it's several hour drive uh, going from one place to the other uh so The evidence against him was, A, the family alarm on their home. The code was entered at 2 or 3 in the morning. So there he goes. It had to be a family member who did that. B, somebody saw Chris's car, a distinctive yellow Jeep, in the driveway in the early morning hours. And C, there was some kind of DNA evidence on a ticket, a toll ticket. If you remember, we used to have toll tickets before they were scanning. Uh, that they dug up and they said that it was consistent with Chris's. Danielle, what kind of evidence have you been able to uncover that refutes that and is, goes a long way, I think, to establishing Chris's innocence?
0: Um, well, there are a number of things. Um, one of the things is, um, Christopher, right? This is 230 miles away between the University of Rochester and Albany. Um, and driving that Jeep, he would have had to have refueled the Jeep. The prosecution conceded it, it wasn't disputed it, they argued it on summation that he would have had plenty of time to stop to refuel after he allegedly you know, broke into the house, c- carried out this horrific attack and then headed back up to school. Um, but they checked every gas station that would have been open, and I think that our, our investigation showed there would have only been one within this sort of uh, route of travel, if you will, uh, and. and conclusively they determined there was no transaction there that could have been Christopher and not only that they searched every gas station conceivable every rest stop along this theorized route of travel and it was very 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 narrow because you gotta remember Chris was at the campus well, he was at the campus the whole time he never left Rochester uh, at 10 at 30 p.m. he's then back on campus confirmed at 8.30 a.m. so in order for him to have carried out this horrific attack he would have had to made the two hundred thirty mile trip down to Albany got into the house committed the act without leaving without getting blood evidence anywhere nowhere on his jeep got gas got back in his car got all the way back up to Rochester um, where he was then seen sleeping on the couch in his fraternity in the morning um, So what we did is we really broke down that timeline because it wasn't presented to the jury as a theory. It was presented as fact. And what we argue is is that Hinlin and and his wife, who tried the case with him, while they, you know, no doubt believed in Christopher's innocence and tried their best, they utterly failed to to show the impossibility of that timeline. So uh, we looked at the availability of refueling points. We also have hired a forensic pathologist, which was also not done at trial, to take a look at the time of death, to take a look at the scene, and to offer his opinion.
2: So, who was the pathologist, though, the medical examiner, you hired? Uh,
0: we hi well, Hubbard Jeffrey Hubbard was um, the witness at trial. We hired Cyril Wecht, um, who's who is
2: great. for those for those of us who don't know, who is he? Because he's a he's a very famous medical examiner.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's been around forever. He was around uh, during the Kennedy assassination. I mean, he's, he's worked on a lot of high profile cases. He's very outspoken. He's very opinionated. And, and we gave him really no guidance at all. Um, we said, Hey, take a look at this. And what we did is we got tissue slides from Peter Porco's autopsy and we had him take a, you know, take a look. And he determined based on, um, you know the time Peter's temperature was measured around 1 30 p.m. when he was found um, and taking his health condition um, into effect and the temperature in the home that Peter um, really probably died around 6 30 a.m. approximately but what he also concluded which was really key is that given Peter's grave injuries and this, this this poor man who really was a beloved man had at least 15 strikes to his head and his face and his chest. Um, And due to the blood loss that this would have caused, that he really only could have survived for maybe 30 minutes, you know, roughly. And again, these are approximations after the attack, which would mean that the attack would have had occurred around, you know, 6 a.m., not between 2.14 a.m., and four fifty a.m., as prosecutors theorized. So you know, Dr. Wex's findings really kind of turned the timeline on its head, um, because Christopher, at that time, if he were guilty, which he is not, would have had to have been racing back to Rochester. Um,
1: so, so those so are you things,
2: the yeah. timeline, the time of death. Um, and,
1: but can I just can I just interpose here because? the one thing that's remarkable to me about his claim of innocence is whenever we look at evidence and we look at what the previous counsel did or failed to do and whether or not the individual got a fair trial because sometimes guilty people get unfair trials and deserve a second shot i gotta try to look at the person like what was the background what was the motive who was christopher porco and what you told me previously that really resonates to me is that there's another party here the mom was also viciously attacked obviously by the same perpetrator but managed to survive and i understand that as she was dying police were trying to get a statement from her as to who did this and as she's like convulsing and bleeding out and almost unconscious they said what's this your son or something to that effect and they claim that she nodded and she has no recollection of that but in any case she has supported her son and is adamant about his innocence from the start and um i think she's described her son to you what does she tell you about her son and who he was at that time
0: that's right that's right joan is really uh remarkable to say the least um she and i talk quite a bit um i met her i met her now 10 years ago i met them in 2013 and i met them because chris was incarcerated with another gentleman that i represented but um yeah, so Joan, there was this head nod, this gesture, and the specific accounts of it vary slightly, but essentially, um, a detective, Detective Bodish asked her, um, did one of your sons do this to you? And they claim that she she made a gesture or her finger nodded, yes. Ultimately, they asked her if Christopher, she, she nodded, gestured, yes, they said. She has no recollection of this, but what she knows in her heart is that her son could not have done this. Um, you know, when you look at cases of where children murder their parents, there are usually um, uh, there are usually cases of severe abuse, of um, documented mental illness, of serious trauma, serious dysfunction in the family. This was not that family. Joan was a speech disorders. You know nothing. Joan was a speech pathologist. Peter was an attorney, a court attorney. They were hardworking people. He had an older brother, Jonathan, um, and uh, Jonathan also went to the University of Rochester. Um, there was, uh, they both swam on the swim team, played soccer. The family went camping. They did outdoors outdoor trips. They had relatives that they were close with. Um, so really nothing in his background uh, to, to signal this. Now, the motive you, you brought up, right? Given all this, what was the motive? And uh the prosecutors theorized that it was for money um they did ha- Joan and Peter did have uh, life insurance policies where if they died, their two sons would naturally be the beneficiaries. but we're not talking about millions of dollars. This isn't the Melendez brothers. They didn't stand to inherit a multi-million dollar estate. They stood to inherit what children would typically inherit if if their parents passed away um Christopher what, what had.
2: You raised yeah. his brother. What's his brother's attitude? Is he still alive? What's his take on it?
0: His brother's in the navy. He's um, he's a naval officer, and the brother is is, is very uh, was very quiet. Uh, he he did testify at the trial, um, but he he had uncertainty. You know, he well, didn't... His,
2: the way this went down. Am I right? The brother ended up receiving me. And, well, the mother survived, so nobody inherited anything. The mother got everything, right? Correct. And if, if when the mother passes away, can she still leave money to Chris? Uh, I,
0: I my instinct is no. I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't. I think that that would probably be contested, given that he was convicted of assaulting her. Um, I don't actually know with a hundred percent certainty.
1: It's actually really? interesting because yeah. I think that you can't <laughs> you can't gain proceeds if you if your you know bad conduct created those proceeds but here her death assuming a natural death one day wouldn't be the result of his assault so i think i think there's a strong argument that he would get it but um it's kind of nuts because the motive, I mean, they're always going to go with money, if there's any money to be gained, right? And Even if the person hasn't been money-hungry or complained about money or, you know, has a drug problem or a gambling problem or has people after them, none of that existed. In the case of Darlie Rotier in Texas, who's incarcerated, they claim she killed two of her kids for $10,000 life insurance payout, which is just astronomically ridiculous, but – um, here, the police didn't investigate anybody else, did they?
0: No, they didn't. And, you know, we, we did, um, Aina, um, we did talk about, you know, that how this notion of confirmation bias, right? A fancy word of basically just kind of saying that, you know, once you once you have a suspect in mind, once you believe that you've got your guy, then every lead, every piece of evidence thereafter is kind of viewed through this prism of presumed guilt. And so, I mean, they didn't even indict Chris for a whole year they investigated it. They investigated him and they built a case against him. I mean, they sent out, this is astounding to me, they sent out questionnaires to his classmates at the University of Rochester, uh, at least 100 different students, at least. Did you know Chris to drink alcohol? Did you know Chris to ever be violent? Did you know Chris to ever lie? Did you know Chris to be materialistic? I mean, this was kind of what went out yeah. there. That I was, wonder that's...
1: what my college friends would have said about me.
2: <laughs> you know, that...
1: <laughs> hopefully they would have said nice things. But I what wonder what
2: college other... What about what about your colleagues now? So the, yeah. the... only, nice, <laughs>
1: things. <laughs> only yeah, nice things. Only nice that, things.
2: that's the FBI. The FBI. We had uh, the case that. We Cal also Harris. had a pass with Terry Kinlan on. Um, Cal Harris, they sent out uh, those kinds of questionnaires to all his friends. To, and, like, employees he fired. Right, right. <laughs> no, they're try- trying to look for some kind of profile. Yeah. Um, this this case really does – look, I'm, I don't know if there's such a thing as an expert in wrongful convictions, but in the years of practice, you you see traits in wrongful conviction cases. And a lot of the traits exist here. You have um, the police jumping to a conclusion. You have a lengthy investigation that focuses only on one person. You have circumstantial evidence, no direct evidence, little pieces here and there. You see the police twisting things in a certain way. And you see a defense that was inadequate by any measure as you look back upon it and you have an individual who's absolutely maintained their innocence from the word go all the way through. Um, so uh, uh, look, great work and, so and far. Also, well, let's see what goes. Said
1: in, and, and said in less technical terms, you have a kid who was a loving son who for all purposes got along with his parents, worked at a vet's office, was considered friendly, fun-loving, played sports, played soccer, Helped his neighbor's, you know, autistic child, had no mental health issues, didn't have a drug addiction, didn't have a gambling addiction, didn't have any weird skeletons in the closet. Who is going to college, who is 230 miles away, who would have it would have been incredibly impossible for him to have actually driven, committed this crime, not gotten gas or, you know got gas location that didn't exist and come back where you had calls um, and leads for other possible suspects that were never pursued or taken seriously, where you have a lawyer who was well-intentioned but only focused on the issue of the mom's nod not coming in and didn't bother to get the experts that were necessary, experts that you've now obtained and completely contradicts the government's timeline on this case and make it physically impossible for him to have committed the crime. And yet, how long has he been in prison?
0: Since uh, 2006, 2000, and this,
1: 2006. And and uh, so that's like heh, math. That's like about- 16 years. Yeah, thank you. 16, thank 17 you for, years. It, the longer pause, it would have been very embarrassing. Um, That's why we didn't, I, we're not math majors. And his mom, his mom still sees him in prison, loves him, believes in his innocence, supports him. A hundred percent. You know, one thing
0: that was interested, interesting, um, the, uh, the one of the lead prosecutors who's now in private practice, Michael McDermott, um, he made a comment at some point that he knows Chris better than his own mother. Yeah. And, and, you know, how arrogant, How how arrogant. She was dismissed. Her assertions and her commitment to her son's innocence were dismissed as naive.
2: Well, dismissed, except that they introduced evidence that while she was in the hospital, brutally attacked, no memory of the event, asked if Chris did this, she supposedly nodded yes. And they introduced that into evidence that she did that. The appellate division, if I'm not mistaken, found that to be error, but called it harmless. Harmless. It's just unbelievable to me. Um, well, and there's no way she could have known who did this. They recognized that it was a ridiculous um, hearsay statement that shouldn't have come in. That's utterly unreliable. She doesn't believe it now. Didn't believe it then. But the mother of the uh, assailant saying that he attacked her um, came into evidence and the appellate division called it harmless. This really reminds me of Marty Tankliff's case for people on Long Island, where he was convicted of killing both his parents brutally in their home. And exonerated 17 years later.
1: Yeah, Um, but but a a key difference and yet similarity is that police lied to Marty, said his father survived, and identified him as the murderer.
2: Right. Right. No, that's
1: quite similar to his the mom here actually surviving, but being in no condition to be responsive to police as she's hemorrhaging and about to die.
2: Danielle, you're doing great work on this case, Uh, even if we do say so ourselves. Obviously, it's our firm that's representing uh, Chris. Keep up the great work here. Um, The entire entire, um, firm supports you in this. We'll do whatever we have to do to help Chris. Uh, And I hope we can find a fair judge up there and a fair hearing. Uh, And we're going to have back back on. We want to have Chris on when he is out of jail, out of prison. How about that?
0: It's
2: a deal. Okay. Okay. Um, We'll be back next week with more in Crime and Justice Radio. See you later. Thanks. See See you later, everyone.
1: Happy Martin Luther King Day.